No Man's Land listeners. I'm Audrey Gelman, CEO and co-founder of The Wing. Over at my house, we're counting down the days until we can watch the second season of the Emmy award-winning show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, on December 5th. I mean, how could we not love a show about a 1950s housewife breaking all the rules of polite society to pursue a comedy career? Thanks to Amazon Prime Video for their support, and welcome to episode one of No Man's Land. Stephanie St. Clair needed no introduction in 1920s Harlem. Everyone knew the queen. She held it down. You know, and every, I mean, man, there's very few women I can think of in Harlem who was held in the same esteem as Madam Queen. That's Harlem writer Karen Canonis Miller describing a true gangster, Stephanie St. Clair, a.k.a. Queenie, the most successful woman to run an illegal lottery in Harlem ever. In the world of underground gambling, the numbers game was big business. And there were over 100 numbers bankers in Harlem, nearly all of them men. And yet Queenie was at the top of the game. Madam was in charge. She never considered anybody above her. But in the early 1930s, there was a problem. Everybody was afraid of Dutch Schultz, you know. Everybody except Our Lady, the Queen. <laughs> you know? Dutch Schultz was a notorious Jewish mobster who'd made a fortune as a bootlegger during Prohibition. And by the end of it, he was up there with the five families, powerful and violent enough for J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, to declare him public enemy number one. Her thing is like, these are white people coming in. This is your stuff. You know, it's not like you need to take their stuff, but you can't let them take yours. Queenie called a meeting and she invited all the top numbers bankers in Harlem because the only way they were going to survive Dutch Schultz was together. Madam Queen was like, well, you know, now's the time when we need to take up our guns. We have enough money. We could buy guns. We could buy men with guns. And they were like, no, 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 no. We don't want any of that. Madam Queen was like, well, you know, I'm a woman and I'm the only one that's going to stand up to the Dutch man. And she called them all kinds of uh, pussies and, and, and all of that. So, oh, can I say that? Oh, please. Oh, I did. All right. <laughs> you know. Madam Queen Stephanie St. Clair was the kind of woman who didn't take shit from anyone, especially not men. So why isn't Stephanie St. Clair a household name, a gangster as well-known as Al Capone, John Dillinger, John Gotti? The obvious answer, the one I initially assumed, was that she's just another woman forgotten by history, but that's not the whole story. We don't know who Stephanie St. Clair is because she disappeared. Before 1938, during her heyday, she's easy to find. Her name is all over the newspapers, but after 1938, it's like a film reel that dissolves. She barely exists in the archives, and there are no heirs. We don't even know where she's buried. She just vanishes. Like, what happened to her? You know, she comes into New York as a mystery, and she leaves out of New York as a mystery. Welcome to No Man's Land, a podcast about women who are too bad for your textbooks. And I'm your host, Alexis Coe, the in-house historian for The Wing, a network of work and community spaces for women. Stephanie St. Clair, Madam Queen, 
Queenie. She was originally from Guadeloupe, an island in the French West Indies, but apparently the French colony didn't sound fancy enough to the Queen, so she changed that part. When the newspapers would later ask where she was from, she'd say, Marseille, France. It had a nice ring to it. Either way, Queenie arrived in New York by steamer in 1914 and moved up to Harlem, which was the thing to do at the time. It had become the symbolic capital of the African-American struggle for civic and economic equality. The population soared from 50,000 to over 200,000 in just 20 years. Queenie came up during the Harlem Renaissance, alongside Zora Neale Hurston. That old black gal is a spiking song that I got down there in Miami. Josephine Baker. La famille pour moi, c'est tout le monde et surtout le public qui m'a fait. Ella Fitzgerald. Sometimes I'd like to write a book and um, hope that people might see the other side of me. But before Ella Fitzgerald could support herself singing, she was in the numbers game as a lookout. So here's how it worked. Maybe Ella stood outside the corner store, the dry cleaners, the market. That's where people placed their bets. And then a runner took it back to headquarters, the bank, as they called it. And that's where the winning numbers were picked, where Queenie would be. The winner could be anyone because everybody played the numbers game. Middle class, working class, your doctor and your school's janitor were just as likely to play as your grandma. They played for fun, they played for profit, and people actually won. They won enough times that they kept on betting. What makes Sinclair different is that I didn't find any other woman who was being talked about like her. I mean, all of the New York newspapers are talking about her. Outside of New York, we got the Chicago Defender, the Pittsburgh. I mean, everybody is talking about this particular woman. And it led me to believe that she is rare. That's Dr. LaShawn Harris, a historian born and raised in New York City, who published a book called Sex Workers, Psychics, and Numbers Runners in 2016. And while it wasn't totally about Stephanie St. Clair, there was an entire chapter on her. This is like the late 1920s, early 1930s, where like Harlem is in vogue. You know, really, as the young people would say today, like kind of flossing. So she is decked out at a time in American history where, you know, this was the Great Depression. So how could a black woman be blinged out during the Great Depression? It was the worst economic downturn in American history. Unemployment soared. People lost their homes. And yet Queenie is flawless, always. Poised, polished, standing tall at 5'9 without heels. And she was never without heels. Her dresses were tailored, her jackets were fur, and her earrings were diamonds. You can see she's got money because it's impossible to miss. Was she outside of, you know, legal work? Yes. Was she arrested? Yes. Did she commit crimes and go to jail? Yes. But she was also a very respectable type of woman. She lived at 409 Edgecombe Avenue, an apartment building Thurgood Marshall and W.B. Du Bois also called home. The who's who of black middle class Harlem lived in that building. She's hoping to garner this respect from her peers. But at the same time, she don't care. Now all the sugar hillers are a bunch of killer dealers. I'm trying to set you right. You can do most any old thing on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, but mostly on Saturday night. 
had a lot of money. She was worth 500000 in 1931. That's $7 today. But even with all that money, she wanted to stay in the game, which was turning into a dangerous business now that Dutch Schultz wanted in. They got desperate. That's Karen Quinones Miller again. And they started, you know, shooting down her places. You know, he was hitting the spots. You know, machine guns and, and all that kind of stuff. For real. In Harlem, in daylight. Yeah. Oh, she was pissed. It was terrifying, even for Queenie. Schultz had hitmen looking for her. But without an alliance with other numbers bankers, she couldn't go to war with Dutch Schultz. So instead, she went to a meeting with him. Well, I got, I got, I got fucking horns going out of my head here. I don't feel nothing. Okay, so obviously there's no recording of this epic meeting, but there is a pretty ridiculous reimagining of it in the 1997 movie Hoodlum. Man, I'm Stephanie. I'm not the fucking devil here. The guy with the absurd New York accent is Dutch Schultz. He's played by Tim Roth, and Queenie is played by none other than Presidential Medal of Freedom winner Cecily Tyson. Comprenez-vous? Oh, y'all fucking vote. So Queenie and the Dutchman are just sitting there, across the table from each other, and you can see Queenie's dagger eyes peeking out from under this oversized black and white hat. And then everybody pulls out their guns. Because Dutch Schultz just put literal balls on the table. He cut off some guy's balls and then he brought them to the meeting. Man, real crazy. Think he can drop that man's balls upon me, Queen? He brought balls to a meeting with a woman to intimidate her. But Queenie doesn't flinch. You forget one thing, T. We no got no balls to lose. You see her attitude? Yeah, my God. I'm scared of her. You know? Right now. You know? (laughs) So the meeting didn't go well. Queenie ends up declaring war. But it's the kind of war she can fight on her own. I want him dead, I want him dead, I want him dead. And then she said, I want uh, a letter sent to the Amsterdam News. The Amsterdam News was a historic black paper that was definitely her favorite. Take down this letter. In 1929, Queenie writes an open letter about Dutch Schultz. It's like an op-ed, but it runs in the advertisement section. And she does this all the time. They start out the same to members of my race, and then there's this big photo of her, almost as big as the letter, dressed to the nines. That the queen hasn't gone anywhere, and the queen is now declaring war. All of you Negroes, this is the 30s, all of you Negroes need to stop going to the banks, even if they have the uh, black people in front of them, because all they do is they take your money, they don't even pay you, and you're just putting money in the white people's hands. And it works. The police raid Dutch Schultz's house. They arrest over a dozen employees and they seize $12 million. I would like to think that the dozens of paid editorials she published made a difference. I'd like to think they made a difference for her, but also for the community, because most of them had nothing to do with the numbers game. They're about registering to vote, what to do if you're a victim of police brutality, to buy black All of it was exactly what activists in Harlem were saying at the time. 
A lot of her op-eds were definitely self-interested. She actually openly complained about dirty cops. Not that they were dirty. That was a good thing. She needed dirty cops to protect her and to look the other way. If you are paying police in order not to get busted, then you should not get busted. And she was paying her ICE faithfully. But Queenie didn't get what she paid for. In 1930, she gets arrested for the numbers game. And she goes to jail. She's sent to Roosevelt Island. Though back then... It was called Welfare Island. She gets out eight months later, and immediately, it's back to business as usual. She's got her numbers game, and she's taken her activism to a literal soapbox. 125th Street and 7th Avenue? That's where Madam Queen had her soapbox. Also on 125th Street and 7th Avenue is where Sufi had his uh, soapbox. Sufi Abdul Hamid. His given name was Eugene Brown, and he was from Chicago. Depending on who you ask, he was an activist, a stepladder preacher, a charlatan. Whatever the case may be, he got Queenie's attention. They both wear turbans. They both happen to like gray a lot. And at first, it was... He was just someone else that she was like, I like what you're saying. Have some money. I will support you. He was about 12 years younger, and he had a reputation. He was known as a womanizer. He sees her as a paycheck. And it, it's uh, the unfortunate, not unusual, but very unfortunate thing where a younger man takes advantage of an older woman's, you know, sentiments. Because she didn't look at him in that way. He made her look at him in that way. But meanwhile, he always had a stable of women. So Queenie knows this, and she lays down some rules. She agrees to marry him in 1936, but they don't go to City Hall. There's no marriage certificate. There's a contract they supposedly signed that said, look, we're going to be married for 99 years, but let's have a one-year trial. And during that year, and of course the 98 that come after, we're going to be, as in specifically Sufi, is going to be totally monogamous. Madam Queen married him um, and moved him in and then noticed that like things were missing and money was missing. And, and she accused him. And he was like, no, Queenie, nobody but you, my love. Taylor's all the time. Yes, yes, yes. And so she uh, decided to follow him. And uh, she saw him with her. Sufi's mistress. She waited until he came out of the apartment or as he was going into the apartment. I don't remember. But she blessed him to good times. He didn't die. Um, She says that she didn't mean to uh, shoot him, that he was struggling with her with the gun, and that's how it went off. Twice. (laughs) Queenie is, of course, arrested. She's tried. She's sentenced to 10 years in Westfield State Prison. Her marriage to Sufi is over, and he dies within a year in a plane crash. She's released just a couple years after that. But unlike the last time Queenie got out of jail, she's not writing editorials. She's not running a numbers game. So, of course, the question is, what is she doing? The newspapers reported her release in 1940, but by 1943, they were listing her whereabouts as unknown. And years later... Historians can't offer us much more than that. There's a rumor that she moved out to Long Island. 
where she lived out the rest of her days in a mansion. And I think that sounds like the kind of story Queenie wanted us to hear. So I posed that theory to Karen, and she gave me this knowing look and then immediately told me something I had never heard before. Oh, gosh, this is so sad. She has to go to work as a maid. As a maid, a housekeeper, and... uh, Her employers always had complaints about her. Because how do you hire a queen? Can't you imagine a black woman in 1950s Harlem with an attitude like Madame Stephanie's? White people will have to figure out she's got to be crazy. I have absolutely no way of confirming this. Karen heard it from people who are long gone and Queenie's records are sealed. So we should consider this oral history and consider it carefully, but to my mind, it seems plausible because Queenie needed a legitimate occupation. She needed something she could tell her parole officer, something he would approve of. And for much of American history, domestic work was one of the few jobs open to women. But even with that clue, decades are still unaccounted for. And that's where she seemingly drops like she just drops I mean she leaves us she's off the map she is ghosts And now, a word from our presenting sponsor, SAP, where we'll hear from a series of women who inspire us with their fearlessness and creativity. Hi, I'm Alicia Tillman, Chief Marketing Officer at SAP, where we provide companies the technology they need to run at their best and help the world become a better place. There are various ways that you can help those who don't have the power to affect change. That's Chaz Ebert. Chaz was married to film critic Roger Ebert and is known for running several Ebert enterprises. She's also known as an advocate for women and women of color in the entertainment industry. When we're talking about movies, when we're talking about any of the arts, when we're talking about technology... I think that the people who produce that technology should be made up of people who look like society looks. For Chaz, highlighting the voices of women and women of color isn't about just listening to what they say. It's about making strategic moves to give those voices a platform. For example, at the Cannes Film Festival in May, many pledged to aim for a 50-50 balance of men and women working in the industry by 2020. And I looked in my, within my own organization at RogerEbert.com. And so I said, why do we have to wait until 2020? Let's take our top 10 critics and make them achieve a gender parity. Now, out of the 10 major critics who write for Chaz's publication each week, half of them are women. SAP is committed to creating technology that helps women like Chaz break rules to help move women forward. Please visit sap.com forward slash women forward to learn more. So when LaShawn Harris's book came out in 2016, she thought she was done. She thought she'd found everything there was to find on Madame Queen Stephanie St. Clair. Fast forward a year later, 
LaShawn was in New York, researching in the municipal archives. I said, well, let me just see, you know, there's probably not going to be anything. This is, you know, I don't want to see anything, but this is, there's nothing there. So she types the name Stephanie St. Clair into the computer. And court documents came up. Oh, my God. Between 1968 and 1969. It's a historian's dream and a historian's nightmare. I was so, I mean, I thought I was just going to pass out, right? <laughs> you know, I started hyperventilating and didn't look at it again until I got a call. From us? I got a call from you guys. And I said, shit. We went back to look at the surrogate court documents together. We are in the reference room of the Municipal Archives in downtown New York and case 7721. It wasn't a treasure chest. It was more like a treasure map. It didn't have all the information we were looking for, but the clues were significant. Like, for the first time, we learned exactly when Queenie died, December 11th, 1969. And we know who she owed money to. So in the server court documents, one of the entities that was paid money for about 706, it's right here, was paid to a funeral home. So there are creditors listed on there who are looking to get paid. And I figured, okay, if I can find those creditors, then maybe we could figure out what happened to Queenie. Good afternoon, but the funeral. The surrogate court papers listed funeral costs, but they didn't say who the funeral costs were paid out to. So I figured I'd start with Benta's because it's one of the oldest and most popular funeral homes in Harlem. Hi, my name is Alexis Coe, and I'm calling to see um, if you have records on a funeral that occurred in 1969. No, ma'am. Where where would those records be? Hold on a second. Okay. Hi, ma'am. Hi. Yes. So they just don't have those records. Our records go back as far as 1985. Okay. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Time for a different strategy. I put the court records aside and I looked at her naturalization records from 1924. She's listed as Stephanie St. Clair, also known as Stephanie Gachette. Married 12 years before she even meets Sufi. This is George Gachette, and Stephanie Sinclair married him in 1915. This is his. LaShawn Harris and I are back in the archives, in the quiet room, hovering over the court documents. And I ask her about George Gachette. He's the elevator operator who she lists as her husband, but she also lists his residence as, quote unquote, unknown. And yet she signs that document as Stephanie Gachette. This is his, this right here is his certificate of death. He dies in February of 1947. So on his death certificate, he lists Stephanie Gachette as his wife. And that gave me an idea. Did you check to see if she is buried at the same place as her first husband? No, I did not, and that's a possibility. Because often there are double plots. That's a clue. That's definitely a clue. Cemetery, Muzzy speaking. How can I help you? Hi, my name is Alexis Cohen, and I am calling to confirm that someone is buried at your cemetery. What's the last name? The last name is Gachette, G-A-C-H-E-T-T-E, George Gachette. 
he died on February 9th, 1947. George, you said? George. Yeah, he's buried here. Oh, he is. Okay. Um, and is that a single plot or is that a double plot? It should be Section 21. I'm pretty sure it's for three people. Three people. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell me who's next to him? I don't know, hon. All I can give you is the location. So, of course, I immediately head out to St. Raymond Cemetery in the Bronx. This is 21, so that's got to be 20. And I know George Gachette's plot is row 19, grave 47, three plots... I'm feeling hopeful. Oh, here he is. George Gachette, 1887-1947. And I immediately notice it's not a triple plot. There's just an empty space next to it. It's a double plot. And while there is a woman buried next to him... That's not Stephanie St. Clair. That's Mary E. Augustine. Mary E. Augustine. She died in 1950, and for a moment I thought she must have been George Gachette's second wife. But she wasn't. She was his sister. He could have purchased the plot with the mindset, you know, till death do us part. And the person that's going to be buried next to me is my wife, Stephanie Sinclair. Maybe it's a green card marriage. Maybe it's some sort of agreement. Maybe it was initially love. Who yeah, knows? That's, that's what I would like to think. I would like to think that... That she had that. That she had some sort of affection. In 1960, Queenie reappears for just a moment in the New York Post. The article describes her as a prosperous businesswoman who owns a four-story apartment building in Sugar Hill. But the building records I found didn't quite match up. She owned a brownstone across the street from Alexander Hamilton's Grange. That much is true. But she bought it six years after that Post article came out, with a loan meant for first-time homebuyers. And yet those building records also tell me she had a hard time paying her mortgage. There's a lot of activity on the books. She's buying and selling the title, refinancing, taking out high-risk loans. And then there's the court records. I found a curious incident on January 10th, 1968, when Queenie was about 77 years old. She was out on an early morning walk, crossing St. Nicholas Avenue, when she was hit by a laundry truck. That's the story she told in court. But the driver she sued told a slightly different version. He said that Queenie literally ran into the side of his truck. In the end, the court sided with Queenie, mostly. They awarded her $2,000 in damages, which is around $15,000 today. But she had to agree that she was contributorily negligent. And that's significant. There's something going on here. Because at this point, late-in-life Queenie probably isn't working. She's taking out high-risk loans on a house that's constantly changing hands. And then there's the accident. Is she an elderly victim? Or are we seeing a flash of 1930s Queenie doing what needs to be done because she's not going to let that house go without a fight? At this point, I tracked down everyone I could think of. The daughter of the doctor who treated Queenie after the accident. You are actually, at this point, our closest connection. Well, good luck then. (laughs) The lawyer who represented her and claimed to know nothing about it, even as I was staring at his signature on the court documents. I tell you the truth, I don't remember the name, to be honest. 
I called real estate agents, government offices, historic societies and archives, and so many cemeteries. All dead ends. The number you dialed has been changed, disconnected, or is no longer in service. So I just decided, I've got to hop on a train, I'm going to go to Harlem and see this brownstone I've been reading so much about. Queenie's last known residence, 141st Street and Convent Avenue. And to my utter disbelief, this time, I actually found something. What would you want to know about? That's Barbara Wahlberg, a neighbor who actually remembers Queenie. We knew Madam because we were very young and we see every day. That's her sister, Judy Wahlberg. And they were just kids when Queenie lived on the block in the mid-1960s. But she made an impression. No, no, everybody knew who she was. And they respected her for that, you know. She was the queen. That was Madam. And they knew that she was looking out for her property as well as your property. She knew all the kids. If she saw the kids doing something wrong in the street, she'd yell at you in a minute. You know, she was at, you know, that type. And she had a very, very strong West Indian accent. And um, one thing I remember, she had a pair of earrings that I was always fascinated on. They were hanging long, hanging, and they were like diamond and um, marcasite. They're real long. And I think she must have slept in those years because every time, whenever you saw her, she had, they were beautiful. They were beautiful. She always had them on. But she always dressed. She always looked nice. The queenie they described was a queenie I recognized. A little scary, super confident, wearing jewelry you remember 50 years later. She didn't have to be ashamed of what she did. And she wasn't ashamed of what she did. And she was very close with the police because the police loved her. And the cops used to come down here all the time to check on her to make sure everything was going fine, you know. She was never, she, I'm madam. She wasn't ashamed of that. I mean, why should she be? She was a businesswoman. She was taking care of business. She wasn't minding your business. You take care of your business. She take care of hers. It made me so happy for her to know that even in her later years, when she may have indeed been struggling, she was still the queen. As far as where she's buried, I look at that like Alice Walker and Zora Neale Hurston. You know, Zora Neale Hurston was really, really forgotten until Alice Walker, you know, decided to to look her up and find a grave and put a marker and all that in order so that people could pay their respects. So there's that part of me that wants to do that. But I don't know if I would want to release it to the world because I don't know that everybody will respect her the way I do. And I don't want her disrespected. But in the end, she was. The surrogate court documents reveal that Queenie didn't spend the last year of her life in that brownstone. She sold it to her tenants in 1968 and spent the last nine months of her life in Central Islip Psychiatric Center. Now, we don't know why Queenie was admitted to a psychiatric hospital, but I don't think it was a mental health issue. There's literally no evidence to suggest it anywhere. And over the years, I've studied women who ended up in asylums who never should have been there and wouldn't today. But things like postpartum, sexual assault, and even same-sex love, that was all it took. So I really think that Queenie ended up there because she didn't have enough money to support herself. She couldn't pay for elderly care, and she didn't have family to take care of her. So the state was the default. It's like, don't know what to do with a woman? Throw her in an asylum. 
So obviously I needed to see Central ISIP Psychiatric Center, and I asked LaShawn Harris to come with me. We are running through the Atlantic Barclays Center, going to track five to catch the LIRR to Central Iceland. We've got three minutes. Now arriving on track seven, stopping at Mineola, Hicksville, Bethpage, Brentwood, Central Iceland, and Rinkakama. Central Islip Psychiatric Center is in Long Island. It's long closed. The state uses the buildings for other things now, but when it opened in the 1890s, it was a place where patients could work on a farm and get O&O, occupation and oxygen. And by the 1950s, it was the second biggest psychiatric institution in America, housing the sick, the poor, the insane, and for many, like Queenie, it was their last stop. This is so surreal for me right now. I don't know. I mean, it's peaceful just because we there are no right, people. Right. I'm leading LaShawn on a little walk about 10 minutes away from the main buildings. We're on the field. We're getting closer. It's actually really pretty. Yeah, it is really pretty. Past the water tower and towards an area clearly marked no trespassing. That a fence or like a little gate? Yeah. Yeah, that's a little gate. We're going to go around it. Still TBD if we're allowed to do this. But so far, so good. Right. I haven't told LaShawn where I'm taking her, but I can tell she's starting to get it. All right. So we're going to stop here from this open field, which looks like a field, but is a giant graveyard. And you wouldn't know that because there are no headstones. This is where Queenie is most likely buried. This would be like looking for a needle in a haystack. There's clearly no one tending to the cemetery, if you can even call it a cemetery. There are just these sad markers on the ground, completely obscured by layers of grass and dirt. And most of them don't even have names. They only have numbers, and we don't know Queenie's number. Is that 3338? We wandered around unearthing gravestones. We kept looking for Queenie, even though we knew we weren't going to find her. This is sad. This is, I mean, this is... I mean, when I think about her story, I always, we always think about, you know, the wealth or how extraordinary she was. But to know that she may be here in this open field is just surreal. It's, it's, and I didn't think it would end like this. You want to imagine her in one of those somewhat gaudy mausoleums. Just the fact that there's nothing... You would never know that there are people underneath this ground is heartbreaking. On the train ride back to the city, I thought about the cemetery and how undeniably sad it was that she may have ended up there. But in the weeks that followed, when I thought about Queenie, which was constantly, I thought about her numbers game and those newspaper articles and how she took on Dutch Schultz and anybody who got in her way and how grateful I am to know about those years. The years that made her the queen. We're just left, not just wondering, but like, what a wonder. But Alexis, don't you think that maybe that's what she would like? It's exactly what I think. Yes! <laughs> exactly. Motopoy, 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 ashe. That's exactly how she would have loved it. That's exactly. And I know that she's listening right now and she is just smiling and saying, mm hmm. No Man's Land is a co-production of The Wing and Pineapple Street Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alexis Coe. 
Our executive producers are Audrey Gelman, Deidre Dyer, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. No Man's Land is produced by Anne Hepperman and edited by Diane Hodson. Cameron Mesro composed the music and her band Glasser wrote the theme with additional music by the band Lola Tone. Special thanks to Cynthia Pimentel, Maddie Sprung-Kaiser, Dina Kleiner, Melanie Autorescu, Laia Garcia, and Diva Pardue. To learn more about Queenie, check out Dr. LaShawn Harris's book, Sex Workers, Psychics, and Number Runners, and Karen Quinones Miller's book, Harlem Godfather, The Rap on My Husband, Bumpy Ellsworth Johnson. If you're interested in a women's-focused workspace and a place to hang in New York, LA, DC, San Francisco, Chicago, or London, consider The Wing. Apply for membership at www.the-wing.com. Join us next week to learn about how the myth of Sylvia Plath as the perennial depressive is totally wrong and instead celebrate her incredible genius. Thanks for listening.